0: Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 127 of Control the Controllables. And I promise you are going to love this one.
1: So I have a favorite saying, if you've done the best you can, and uh, you win or you lose, and you really have control over the things that you control regardless of the outcome, go have dinner and enjoy your dinner.
0: Okay. Go eat. And that was the great Jim Lair, the performance psychologist. Anybody that follows sports psychology at all will, will have heard of Jim Lair. He's written 17 books. He's worked with 17 world number ones across the sports. He's worked in business, in medicine, in law enforcement, with FBI hostage rescue teams, military special forces. And for us to be able to get him on the show, for him to share his stories, for him to link them back into the beautiful sport that is tennis. And for me to find out, actually, there's his psychology journey started in tennis. And it was, you'll hear me talking about Gully at the start of the podcast. And it, some of you might go, well, who's Gully? Well, Gully is... Tom Gullickson, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I wish you could have all listened to the, to the phone call that I had from Tom Gullickson as he told me that he was going to introduce me to, he calls it, Members of the Fog, Friends of Gully. And in, in Jim Lair, and he tell, told me the story about how he came across Jim Lair back in 1982, which Jim touches on in the podcast. And like Tom Gullickson, if you did listen to his podcast, Jim is another incredible storyteller. And it seems like that era of, of American tennis just seemed to have so many incredible stories and tell them so well. And there's going to be lots that, that Jim goes into um a big shout out to him for coming onto the show. Just to name a few of the athletes that he's worked with. He's worked with Monica Sellers, Jim Courier, Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. You know, he's he's working with many of the players during Wimbledon right now, even though he didn't give me the names. I think I know that he's working with Riley O'Pelka. He's also worked with the golfers, Justin Rose and 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 many others. And you're in for a treat. So get your, your notepad and pen out. Uh, when I was telling Vicky about this one, I said there's some great quotes and the quotes just keep on coming. So it's never been easy to find the quotes. You guys are going to be treated to that right now. And I'm going to pass you over to Dr. Jim Lair. So Jim Lair, a massive welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Daniel. Thanks uh, for having me. I'm uh, excited to have this conversation with you.
0: It's a it's a massive honor for me. It really is. I'm someone who's followed your work for for many years, and and when Gully said there might be the opportunity to get you on to have a chat, <laughs> uh, for purely selfish reasons, I I jumped at it. And and if it happens to be listened by lots of people as well, then then all the better, uh, because you've certainly had a life full of so many so many amazing things, and and I think for me today, it's a little bit about where do I go? Because there's, there's so many areas we can jump into, but where I start with all guests is trying to understand a little bit where, where that journey started, you know, and, and specifically the journey into performance psychology Mm -hmm. and, and also then even more specific than that into, into tennis as well.
1: Well, you know, it's an interesting, I, I would say I probably ended up in this area by accident. I started my, my training as a psychologist, was more in the clinical area, in the area of working in the area of community mental health. I did my okay. internship and all that stuff in community mental health, and I became licensed in the state of Colorado, and I received an offer for a fairly big job as executive director and chief psychologist for, the, for a lar- very large community mental health center that served the whole central and Southern part of Colorado. And um, it had nine offices and covered an 8,600 square mile area. It was a big job and it was kind of, uh, you know, it was the first major opportunity that I had as, as a psychologist. And I just assumed that's what I would be doing for the rest of my life because that's what I was trained to do. And
0: okay.
1: I met an exercise physiologist by the name of Dr. Joe V uh, in the catchment area called Adam state college. And he is a track and field absolute legend. He's as so many Olympic, uh, you know, uh, accolades to his name. They have a bronze statue of him there at Adams state college. And, uh, He and I became good friends. He actually asked me to start doing some work with his track and field athletes as a psychologist. He would ask me, Jim, from all that you know, as a psychologist, what can you tell me to get more out of my uh, athletes? And I said, Joe, I don't have a clue. I, I know how to help get people who are not well to get them to be reasonably healthy, perhaps, take them from sickness to wellness, but I have no clue how to take somebody who's pretty normal and make them extraordinary. That's not something I knew anything about. And he says, well, I think you gotta look into it and look into it for me. And so he kept asking me, so I I did a literature search. This was back in the seventies. And I realized there was, it was nothing out there that was any of any significance. It was kind of a burgeoning field. And he said, you know, you if you you're kind of a pioneering spirit why don't you go out and start this area of application he said because someday I can guarantee you it's going to be big really big and I said leave this profession I have now and just kind of launch into this and he said well think about it because I think it would be really an exciting journey so I struggled with it. And finally I made the decision. I resigned to a 23 member board of directors. They offered almost doubled my salary, thought it was a ploy for more money. And I said, no, no, I want to apply psychology to sport and we'll call it sports psychology. And they go, you know, Lair must be, he can't handle the stress, there's something wrong here. Why would he leave this great opportunity? And I lost a lot of my friends because all of my colleagues thought I had duly lost my mind. And I started, I moved to Denver and started uh, a a place that I called the center for athletic excellence. And it was the application of psychology to human performance. And I realized I didn't know anything, but I was just kind of trying to figure it out. How can you apply this? And uh, I started getting better. Um, and then I met Tom Gullickson. I had, I was in a, um, I played a lot of tennis. I was uh, invited to a, a tennis program, a tennis charity called Cystic Fibrosis. And uh, I was one of the pros and I had a, my partner was good friends with the Gullickson's and she knew that Tom was struggling on the tour And she said, why don't you meet with this guy I just had, I just played with him at the cystic fibrosis tournament. And I think you would enjoy having dinner with him. Why don't you do it? So he called me, we had dinner and we hit it off pretty well. And he said, well, how do I pay you? And he said, well, first of all, I don't have any money. And I says, I'm going to give you an option. I said, I can never talk about to anyone. I've had some successes, but I never can talk about it. They always ask me, well, who have you worked with? And I say, I can't tell you it's yeah, yeah. confidential. And I said, I'll do a fee for service. This is my fee or I'll do it for free. And the only thing you have to do is let people know, you just let them know that this has helped you. And uh, he said, well, I'll take option two for sure, because I don't have any money.
0: <laughs>
1: so we worked together for uh, quite a while. And then he went off and played team tennis and uh, had an unbelievable run and he got to the quarters of the US Open and um, he actually made uh, 23 in the world. And um, he's had, he had a brilliant career and he and his brother, Tim, got to number two in the world um, behind Mac, Johnny Mac and Fleming. And um, that really started it, but I realized I needed a lot more work. I mean, I had no formal education. So I decided who was the best competitor in professional tennis right now and it was Jimmy Connors and he was building a new it's called the United States Jimmy Connors Tennis Center at Sanibel in Fort Myers and I uh, they were uh, it was I noticed they were asking for someone to run the whole tennis facility and I this guy by the name of Bob Davis I said I'll do that for you but I want to have access to Jimmy and understand what makes him tick so I can I want to learn from jimmy connors so i spent two years there and i collected a lot of information uh, about this guy's brain and how it worked and then i was asked if i would leave and go to the nick volatieri tennis academy where i became the director of sports psychology and the director of sports science for the next six years wow and it was really the time at the Nick Bollettieri Tennis Academy that I really, that was my steepest learning curve I had. And I was responsible for the mental and emotional welfare of 240 kids, many of which were the best players in the game. At that time, it was the most prolific period of player development in the history of tennis. I don't think it'll ever be yeah. replicated. And, uh, it was worth two PhDs for me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just, I was, I had complete access to all the players. I collected data. I still have boxes of data that I collected. I had them up to, had microphones on them when they were to verbalize what they were saying to themselves. I had electromyrographic recordings. I had EEG. I had, I did everything I could possibly do. Computerized, uh, match, play analysis synchronized with heart rate data. And I could see the oscillations in people's heart rate and, in their, and aligned with their competitive play. And all of that data collection helped me develop a system that I have used ever since. So okay. it was a long journey. And it was not the journey I imagined I would be on, but I feel very grateful for, you know, and and I learn every time I work with an athlete and I've worked with in just about every sport, every time I do it, I learn more.
0: And I guess at that time, it must've been quite a brave move by Nick to bring in somebody in the world of sports psychology, because it's, it almost seems to me back in that day, I guess, mid eighties, it was a tennis player goes to see a sports psychologist. They must have a problem. You know, so to, so to actually see it in a more holistic way like that, that was quite a big move and quite a brave move almost. It was, a, it was a very,
1: yeah, very bold move on the part of Nick. He just knew that I had a lot of his players coming to the Jimmy Connors yeah. United States Center, Center to see me And I was helping them. And he said, I don't like my students driving to Fort Myers to see you. Mm -hmm. I'll make a place for you here and then you can work with all the kids. So uh, it was the beginning of what IMG now has, the whole design of the sports science and all the exercise physiologists, nutritionists. I gave Nick a whole list of things that I felt had to be changed. My my whole... um, approach was to humanize the environment and give kids an opportunity to have more of a real life to be able to find how they can recover and relax more relaxation and most importantly better diet better exercise physiologists helping them with injury prevention and injury rehabilitation because they are in a grueling environment that was Pretty tough on even the healthiest of young men and women and boys and girls and so my goal was to try to figure out how can I help them mentally but also emotionally and physically and take care of them while they're going through this extraordinary mobilization to become a world-class player so but in that process I really really felt like I had an opportunity to learn and to see how these kids respond to stress. I developed a whole theory of stress, a whole approach to the between point time in tennis, in doubles, uh, the communication patterns. And that was all done through data collection and analyzing forever. I had a videographer by the name of Walker Sahag, who uh, collected all this video that I could review and we developed videos for Andre Agassi and all the players to help them get motivated and to see the up and synchronized to their favorite music. And we saw the effect that has on them, had on them emotionally and physically. And it was just, uh, I I felt like without that, my career would never have been the same because I really didn't have the real learning opportunities that today they have PhD programs in mm-hmm. performance psychology and and clinical psychology with a with a specialty in performance psychology or sports psychology, but they didn't have any of that when I was uh, uh, going through my iterations, and so I had to I kind of had to figure it out on my own.
0: The the question there's a few questions that jumped to my mind if we go back 30 years that was you know so you were doing this in in the world of tennis 30 years ago and it's a it's a big belief of mine that mental fitness is as important or more important than physical fitness yet it 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 has nowhere near the same amount of time attributed to it as is attributed to going into the gym and lifting weights and right. and running Why hasn't tennis developed that? Because a couple of weeks ago, we had Iga Svantec training at my academy in Spain, and she travels with a sports psychologist. And it's Mm. it's not just a sports psychologist. It's uh, taking care of performance, but also taking care of wellness. You know, it's somebody who's working on a one-on-one, but it feels as if that doesn't happen very frequently, whereas... You have people travelling with doctors, physios, physical coaches,
1: nutritionists. Everything. Nutritionists.
0: Why? Why hasn't the sport grasped the the mental side of the game? When we take someone like yourself, who's been doing this now to a to a high level for thirty years.
1: You know, it's. A, I really feel like you said it earlier in our conversation where there was almost like a stigma associated that if you, if you have a, if you have a mental issue, it's almost like a mark on your character. It's a sign of special weakness. And uh, I think that has for the most part, you know, gotten a whole lot better because so many people now are, but they do it in private. They do it in secret. They don't want anybody to know. And uh, it's a, it really is an interesting thing because in my view, after having gone all these miles and miles and miles of work in this area, I've kind of changed my, the paradigm and the, the lens through which I see this. And I, I see the human system as a fully integrated system and that what you eat affects you mentally. Yep. And your fitness will affect you mentally how you control emotion and how you deal with, uh, emotional challenges off and on the court will affect you mentally. Yep. And what I call the spiritual dimension, why you play tennis and what it is that actually is your mission in tennis. What, why do you work so hard? What is it you want? You want trophies, and you want simply accolades. You don't care how you get there. That's all that matters to you. What? So, it's so integrated. You push one lever, and it affects all the other levers. Yep. And so, you know, you get a great coach who works with the players physically, nutritionally, biomechanically. They work uh, to get the person healthier in every way possible, and biomechanical health is an important part. Yep. A lot of people choke because their second serve just is so inefficient that under pressure. Just doesn't hold up, and it's not their their mind that needs adjusting. You know, they haven't mastered that, the skill.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, it really is the biomechanical problem that has to be addressed, and so you can't just say it's a mental issue when they have a problem. Now, this is obviously a critical part: the mindset they have, the focus they're able to generate on the present, the ability to structure. Uh, this properly in their mind how they set it up how they deal with losses how they deal with recovery the between point time it's all balance so when I'm looking when I'm working with players I'm trying to look at the big picture and help them understand first of all who are they as a person and the person first and the athlete second and that whatever they're learning in tennis it should be uh, represented in the entirety of their life. They have to have a balance between tennis. They can't just eat, sleep, and and devour tennis and nothing else. They have to have a life outside of tennis. And if they put all of their identity into tennis and they're not doing well, the whole thing collapses. They have to have a proper perspective about what is tennis to them as a junior, as a, maybe as a person who wants to play professional tennis is really moving into the futures or to challengers and what does a loss mean and all of these issues and what we've learned is there's a way to digest all of that Um, and first and foremost you have to figure out why are you here on planet earth and what, what is your mission in life number one and how does tennis fit into that so I'm a big believer in getting the right mindset around what you're doing and that who you are as a person is far more important than who you are as a player and that your identity cannot be your world ranking, your state ranking, your sectional ranking because you're only as good as your last match. You have to have something that you believe that you have to have a love affair with tennis or whatever the sport is you're in. And you have to come to understand that there will be a life after tennis, whether you are successful at the highest level or not. And all you can do is do your best and may, and train in every way possible and let the rest go. So I have a favorite saying, if you've done the best you can and uh, you win or you lose, and you really have control over the things that you control, regardless of the outcome, go have dinner and enjoy your dinner, go eat because that, that's, you know, the more your brain is wired to really uh, keep, protect you from danger and from injury and from hurt. And if you are pained unmercifully after a loss, your brain won't forget that. And those double faults, those missed down the line backhands, and I don't want that embedded in my memory. What I want are the good shots, the opportunities that I had, and I actually took advantage of them and the excitement and the fun and all the social you know, interactions I had with kids my own age and all that. I want that to be the dominant theme because that'll bring me back. I wanna learn from my mistakes and from my losses, but I don't want them to be the, the major takeaways for me in anything I do. I, need, I learn from mistakes, but I wanna move forward and be challenged to get better my whole theme is let's just get better as a result of today's practice or match. Let's get better physically, emotionally, mentally, and even a clearer sense of why you're doing this. And no matter what happens, if you're getting better, if you're moving closer to a higher spot, win or lose, we're on the right track. And that is kind of, I'm like a, a robot, a broken record. I keep saying the same things until it becomes embedded in this very powerful neurotransmitter between their ears. And suddenly this will become their private voice. Their actual coaching of themselves starts to reflect those statements. And the brain is always on and I'm always trying to get through to that private voice because that's the master of the ship.
0: That last five, six minutes, I'm gonna clip and I'm gonna play every day (laughs) to all of my players at the academy, um, because for me, you've just hit so many nails on the head. And, and I think, you know, one of the things I see a lot, you know, within tennis, and I guess we're not talking about the Roger Federer's, the Rafael Nadal's, the Serena Williams. We're talking about guys and girls that are 500 in the world, 600 in the world, that are, that are trying to make that breakthrough. And so many of them, the losing is what kills them. Because yeah. that losing is what they define themselves by as, as a person and, and their self-worth. And in one of my favorite ever quotes, and it was Roger Federer that said it, was he got asked a question after a match and he, and he said, well, no, I, I have a tolerance for failure. He said, I know I've put my tennis out there, but I can tolerate the failure because if I win the match, and exactly what you've just said there, if I win the match, I go out for dinner with my family. And if I lose the match, I go out to dinner with my family, you know. And,
1: and there's that's perspective. That's what I'm trying to give the player. One hundred percent. So how? And a, a loss is simply a no. Yeah. It just simply is feedback that I somehow I don't quite have. I'm not finished baking yet enough to beat that player. If they were a pusher, or they were intimidating, or I felt like I got upset with them and they, they had the gamesmanship and they kind of stole the match. Well, that just means I'm not emotionally strong enough to handle that and I need to work. It's not really a, an indictment of the other player. It really is an indication that I need to grow more. I need to be able to handle those kinds of things. So I want to get so tough and so strong And and really so prepared that no matter what goes on out there, I stay focused on the present, I stay with my process. I believe that I believe in my team, my coach, and my preparation, and I'm going to give it the best I can. And there are very few things I can't control. My attitude and my effort. Yep. And if I hold you accountable, if I expect you to produce those at the highest level, regardless of what's happening, you can do that you can absolutely do that. And you may not want to do it, or you just decide not to do it, but it is within your control. Now, you don't control winning and losing. You don't control if the person cheats you. You don't control the wind. You don't control the fact that you got a bad draw. You don't control the fact that your hamstring is slightly pulled, and you're very upset that you can't really move to your right as well. Those are not Things within all you can control is the energy you give, and which is hopefully positive energy, and the effort you the energy you bring in effort, and then your attitude around whatever's happening. And I really insist that people continue to stay optimistic. It's really the the image of Rafa, Rafa Nadal. He has learned to give his best on every point, no matter what happens. And that's really that's an that's an un. Natural. It's a not normal brain. If you want that, you can have it, but you're going to have to work like a dog to get it and hold yourself accountable. Yeah. And so I always say that to be a great player is not normal. It's not normal to have an unbelievable forehand or an unbelievable cross court backhand or this kicking serve. You got to work to get that. And if you want to have an incredible brain, a competitive brain. That can hold up under almost any situation, and you bring out your best. I will tell you, you can have that, but that doesn't hap- happen just by wanting it. You have to invest energy and work your butt off over and over and over until you finally close that door. Now, onto the next one, and then you'll slip back. It's just like how long did it take you to win to, to be able to hit that backhand cross-quarter down the line? That one-hander, how many errors did you have to hit? If you ask, Novak Djokovic, how many down the line backhand errors he had to make before he has that sucker wired in, which is one of his signature strengths, it's in the millions. And if every time he missed it, he went nuts, his brain would never allow him to develop this world class, almost top of the class, down the line backhand under stress. So without no's, we never know how good we are. So um, a loss? I missed uh, double fault twice under game in a very critical moment. It simply means I've still got work to do. So go do the work. Don't beat yourself up. Cause if you could have avoided the double fault, you would have, if you intentionally double faulted, then you can beat yourself up. If you didn't give a hundred percent effort and you didn't give, and you didn't have a great attitude. I want you to be tough on yourself because you can control that. And, that's the messaging i have for not just tennis players but all the athletes that i've worked with and continue to work with in just about every sport
0: i love it well as as you can see by the name of the podcast control the controllables is
1: exactly is
0: is something that's incredibly close to my heart and what how we work at the at the Academy in Spain is. I have a sports psychologist, Dr. Anthony Ross, who I think is brilliant. He's in Australia, and Anthony works closely with the team, you know, from remotely. And one of the things we've discussed a lot is that our belief isn't, we believe that you can't control an emotion, you can control how you tolerate that emotion, you accept that emotion, you then, you know, put your mind elsewhere. What are, what are your thoughts on where emotions and thoughts fit into the whole control, the controllables? Is it a controllable or is it an uncontrollable?
1: If you had a switch to, you could change from, you know, this emotion to another, then you can, you know, I, I put it this way, if I had, um, Let's see, I had someone who was a, a, an expert marksman and they're, they have a rifle and they're sitting up in the stands. And if you, uh, sh- if you get nervous, we have a, a barometer of being able to tell the tension in your body or the release of cortisol uh, in the negative emotions, we can see that happening. If you start getting nervous and you choke, in double faulting, you're gonna lose your right leg. The guy's gonna shoot your right leg out from under you. If you had any any way to control that, you would do it. And you would probably, almost everyone would lose their right leg. And parents are screaming and yelling at their kids because they're double faulting, thinking they have control over that. They have control over that. What they do have control over is if, if I said to that marksman in the, in the stands, if they show any negative emotion, they might be feeling anger and frustration, yes, but if they yes. show negative emotion on the outside, they're gonna get shot. They will never get shot. Yes. And if I said, if they show that they're not giving 100% effort, they're just kind of tanking and giving up, they're gonna get shot. They are not gonna get shot. So they can control effort and they can control the expression of negative emotion. They can exp- They can control the expression on their face. But the direct control of emotion and the chemistry in their body is a lot tougher. The same is true with thoughts. You know, you might suddenly have a thought, I'm gonna double fault here. Well, you wouldn't have had that thought if you could have controlled it. But what you can control is how you respond to it. In terms of physically, you can throw your shoulders back, you can go through your rituals, you can do, you know, your pre-serve rituals or return rituals, you can do all of that. You know, it's called preparation. Preparation, preparation, preparation is the secret to the whole deal. And uh, visualization, imagery, journaling, commitment, talking it out, reading it out, all of that is what's training the brain. And the brain is always on, always listening. So I spend a lot of time helping players to understand how do you train? They don't know how to train mentally and emotionally. They know how to train physically, they don't know how to train to get their forehand in better shape or to train to get stronger biceps or triceps or quadriceps or you know any glutes or whatever, but they don't know how to train mentally. And I, and I always say, it's you train exactly the same way, you invest energy, just like you invest energy, extraordinary energy in your bicep, that bicep's gonna grow. If you invest extraordinary energy in being positive, in being focused in the present, in really settling your mind and being calm, taking a deep breath, and you're going to get better and better at that. But if you don't train, you just hope it happens, you're going to be very frustrated, and you will begin to wonder if this is actually possible for you. So uh, I I really believe you have to demystify the the whole thing about mental toughness because um, people can't see it. You know, you can see your bicep growing. It doesn't grow immediately, but then you can see the output. Mentally, it feels like a lot of players feel like I'm just moving air around inside my head. There's nothing really happening when I I entertain negative thoughts or I rip on myself. But that brain is on and it's listening and it's incorporating all that. And it's trying to just your brain exists for one reason, and that is to get you what you want and you need. And it needs to understand, you have to be very careful the messages you're sending it. Because if you send messages that are conflicting, like I have a stupid forehand, I'm never gonna make anything. Well, your brain is hearing that and they go, well, maybe that's it. So we need, just like if you practice your forehand and you allow you to hit a thousand bad shots or every now and then you get lazy and you you allow the whole process to kind of go off the rails, you're gonna get worse. And that actually doesn't help you, even though you spent four hours out on the court, two hours were practicing the wrong stuff. So I would say um, what's true for the body is true for the mind. The mind and the body actually function very much the same. Once you learn how to do rehab in in a rehabilitation facility, you know how to rehab with the brain and how to build muscle in the brain, emotional muscle, spiritual muscle. And and uh, mental, emotional, and spiritual muscle—it's all built the same way.
0: So on that, because I've read your your recent book, in leading with character, which yeah. which is which is fantastic, and I would fully recommend any listeners out there to to take a good look at that. It comes, you know, with a with a journal that you can do your own work with as well. And 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 I found myself making notes as I went. There were so many things that I thought, okay, yes, I. Get that, we try that, but I like the way that's framed. What about this? And, and one of the bits I absolutely loved was this counterbalance. So, this whole mm. idea of you work your bicep, but you don't work your tricep, then you're going to get injured. And, right. you know, same with your character muscles, you know. And, and one of the ones that I really wanted to unpack a little bit with you today was around confidence and humility because I think this is quite a regular one that we see. We see tennis players that have a lot of humility, but they lack confidence. So it then leads to insecurity, you know, which is you know, your words from your book, you know, but I, I love that because that's something I see a lot of. So my question to you is, if I'm in the gym and I'm working on my biceps and I'm starting to get injured, it's relatively easy for me to work on my triceps. If I'm a person that has a lot of humility and I need to counterbalance that with confidence, confidence is not such an easy thing to gain. So if you're working with an athlete and comes in and I would imagine you get this all the time, not just athletes, business Mm -hmm. people, doc, I'm low in confidence, build my confidence up. How, how do you go about that?
1: So again, it's energy inputs to the brain. Yeah. So you can go and, and have them see video of them doing really great things. I would take a lot of the players in tennis, some of them have won US you know, or have won national championships and have won grand slam titles. I put together all their best moments. Okay. Synchronize yeah. it to music and they look at that over and over and over again. So the brain is not looking at all the negative stuff the brain is looking at all the great things they've done. And that is translated directly into the brain. Another thing that we learned is that in terms of visualization and imagery, the brain can't tell the difference between something that's vividly imagined and something that actually happened. It's recorded as an actual input into the brain, reality. Okay. Yep. So the more you visualize doing great things, the more you picture yourself Hitting great forehands and returns and serves and competing really well, having a great body image and being able to win in tough matches and holding up and being really strong in those moments and overcoming adversity and believing in yourself and seeing it happen. That's recorded. That's hard work. That's the heavy lifting you do in the gym for your tricep or bicep. Yep. You also can write it out. We know that writing by hand actually is recorded in this, it's called the prefrontal cortex and this executive function, it actually records it. And so it's almost in a sense, you're coaching yourself to message yourself. If you call yourself stupid and dumb and you're gonna, you're not gonna win this match. You're, you know, you think, well, that's, I'm taking pressure off myself. Your brain doesn't hear it that way your brain hears it as, oh, this is something that's beyond you. And you can't really hold, you won't hold up. So there are lots of ways to put messaging into that brain. And one of them is by writing, by, you know, just putting your voice into a computer on your iPhone and just, you know, talking about how you want to coach yourself that, Hey, I've, I've got a lot of skills. I may not be finished as good as I would like to be at. But I I have a lot of skills and I'm I'm excited about trying them out and I really believe I can go to another level. And I believe that under pressure, I'm actually getting stronger and better and I'm going to test it out. And your brain starts hearing all that positive messaging. It's grounded in reality. It's not just hyperbole. It's actually there is substance to it, but you're crystallizing it. You're giving signals to your own brain. And the more signals you give it, um, and sometimes it's just natural. You win matches and you win a couple of big ones and that's your, your brain picks up on that. But if we have to wait till we get that big win, we may be yep. years getting there. So we can actually develop this and actually develop confidence and never have had one of those big wins. Eventually you get the big wins, but you build every day a way of thinking a way of believing, a way of organizing your life, of getting better, of working hard in practice and seeing it and seeing it on video. I'm a big believer in video, particularly seeing the good stuff, the stuff that you're trying to get to and then crystallizing it with imagery and visualization and really synchronizing that with music, music that inspires you. We need to be inspired. We need to be move to a level that actually helps us to to get renewal and, and, a, and a sense of re-engagement in our path forward and not be stuck with our failures, not be stuck with what's hurt us in the past. We learn from those, but we're on a path and that was all necessary, but it all helped me get better and I'm on a better track. And that's pretty much how you build confidence. That's how I see it. Some coaches are very good at that. They feed them messages that are really powerful, um, and some parents are very good at that, but um, it's uh, it's a process, just like anything else in life.
0: That would work, like for me, I would be like goosebumps back of my neck, come on, this is it, like, let's do this, I'm, I'm right. there. Whereas I know somebody, or quite a few people are listening saying, come on guys, Lee, leave the rocky balboa stuff to to you know that's not reality reality is i've lost six matches in a row man i'm struggling i i you know i'm i get myself and win in winning positions and i'm i'm falling down you know how would how would you approach the doom and gloom that naturally happens with some people
1: well unfortunately the brain is you know gives you what you what you want, basically, I mean, the input you give it. So if you say, you know, I'm on a losing streak, it's awful. You know, I don't know if I'm ever gonna get out of this. You can look at the same thing. It's more important than what happens to you is the story you create around what happens to you. I wrote a whole book on the power of story. And we are always telling ourselves stories. And the stories have to be grounded in truth, but they must inspire you. They must help you to see a, a sense of hope in the future and to integrate any past failures in a positive way so that you're actually learning so i'm spending a lot of time with players getting their story straight if they want to stay with the fact that i've lost six matches and i've been a terrible you know the the body will just stay with you and it'll be seven or eight or there's some crazy thing will finally happen but you have control over the inputs and it's the inputs that are going to make the difference so I just, uh, I try to help them understand, the story has to take you where you wanna go. And if you tell yourself, "I'm, I'm a loser, I've lost six straight matches, it doesn't look good for me, is that gonna get you what you want? And I'm going, no, you've lost, let's face it, you've lost six matches, we've looked at the things that you did well and the things you need to work on, you're getting better in these areas, we need to change this, but you have infinite capacity to go to other levels, you got that out of your system. Now let's move on. And now we're better prepared to deal with the, with the future. And if you do that enough, your brain's going, oh, okay. But if you beat yourself up over those six losses, your brain's not going to forget those six losses.
0: Yeah, very good. And, and and talking of stories, there's a story I would love for you to tell on this podcast. And I, I've heard you tell the story before, and I think it's it's an incredible story. But I want to lead us into it. And the story is about Dan Jansen that I know that you've you've spoken about before. But just to lead into that, it's something else that I really took from from your recent book because I would talk to players all the time about the importance of having different success measures to just the win or loss, you know, and and really, you know, let's work out what those are. And that might be, that might be process related in terms of their tennis or that Mm -hmm. might be, that might be life related, you know, and there's a player that I work with. He's about 300 in the world ATP and we've really contextualized his tennis so that he can take the losses on board because he knows he wants to be a high performance coach in future. You know, so he really hmm. understands. If I have a if I have a tough loss, then in some ways, yes, it hurts. But if I'm dealing with that hurt, and I can I can process that, and I can pers-
1: it's going to help me uh, help others. And it's
0: exactly uh, in
1: get future get to the same play, to understand how to deal with those in a constructive way because I've been there. I know exactly what you're and, feeling.
0: And and exactly, and that what I took from your book was this very similar concept. Or how I took it, my perception was of the hidden scorecard. Mm-hmm. You know that all all people out there, and and I can relate to that. I was an average tennis player, but I won a I won a ITF Futures event, and I I remember that evening I wasn't happy. it didn't, I was expecting, no, I was expecting to have this amazing feeling. So can you tell us and tell the listeners about the hidden scorecard? Because I think this is an absolute gem for everybody. And if you could then link that in with the Dan Jansen story, I think it would be fantastic.
1: Okay. So, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with all these world champions, people who've done, amazing things. They climbed the mountain of success and they were at the pinnacle. They were number one in the world. And you would expect that these folks would experience this incredible fulfillment because their mission was complete. And not in every case, but those who had a a particular mindset felt like is, I've been working all these years for this. So I'm number one in the world. I'm the best in in this sport. I still feel a little empty. It doesn't feel like enough. Maybe I have to be number one for more weeks. Maybe I need to win another, this kind of tournament, major event. And the more they would do it, the more they realized that the satisfaction didn't come from that. There was something else that they were yearning for that just, they never, they missed. And Andre Agassi went through that. If you've, if you're looking for a book that helps people understand that, the book open Andre Agassi's book is, one of the best reads I have found that really helps people understand he was told his whole life that he would be happy and fulfilled if he was became number one in the world and had all the money and fame and everything, and he did it, and it didn't happen. He was not that happy, not that fulfilled, and his ranking dropped at that moment to 141 in the world. And he just thought, you know, I I can't do this anymore. And he and his trainer, Gil Reyes, paused and did a kind of a serious reflection. And they um, realized that that purpose, that purpose wasn't very fulfilling. It it wasn't all about him. And so he reinvented himself, so to speak. And this is getting into this, this hidden scorecard. And what he did was, he decided to go back into tennis, but with a very armed with a different purpose, and that was he had always wanted to reach out and help young people, have them a really safe and really complete education in a way that maybe his life wasn't that way, and he saw lots of other young people in Las Vegas. They didn't have that opportunity. So he took his fame, his money, his sponsors, and said, I'm going to devote my tennis to building a charter school for kids, that they can have an opportunity in life that most kids from their socioeconomic uh, level would never have that opportunity. And so armed with that new purpose, he went back out and played the same sport and came number one again in the world. But this time he found fulfillment. He found a sense of peace and satisfaction because it really wasn't all about him. It was about what he could do for others that was the most fulfilling thing. And I have had so many experiences with these very high performers. And there is this, I came to call it the hidden scorecard where we have this extrinsic marker of success, but that's not the ultimate game. It appears though that we are all operating on a different scorecard that's kind of hidden. And that is our treatment of others as we climb the mountain and our connection to others, our connection to family, our connection to making a contribution that is beyond simply ourselves. Uh, It's called a self-transcending purpose, that your ability to make a difference in the world above and beyond yourself, uh, when you look at what people want to be remembered for, it's not the number of titles, but the impact they had on others, most importantly, family and people they cared about, that's where the satisfaction came from. And that's what sustains greatness. So you can climb the mountain, but it's, that's the, what you did, it's how you got there and your connection and purpose in, in, in really scaling that mountain and chasing like a maniac to be a victor. What are the criterias of real success here? And so that was uh, for me a, a great insight and I've been able to help a lot of you know, really talented world stars that really struggle with this. And it happens, it happens in music. It happens in performance, dancing. It happens in just about every area of life that your connection to others, your treatment of others is probably the gold standard of a fulfilled and satisfying life. So, and the Dan Jansen story, I'll make it relatively brief, but Dan started his Olympic quest um, in Sarajevo is a very young guy. And then he quickly became known as the most extraordinary um, 500 meter speed skater in the world. And at Calgary, he was to win a gold medal. And about just a few hours before his race, He learned that the person that mattered most to him in the world the person he was closest to was his sister jane that she had died of leukemia and had he thought that there's any way that he would have known this he would have flown back and he would have foregone the olympics but he didn't know that and he broke down he was emotionally just so distraught first of all that he wasn't there when she died And uh, he was thinking very seriously of just leaving and not skating. And his father asked him, well, what would Jane is, what would Jane want you to do? Would she want you to skate or would she want you to leave and go to the funeral? And he said, well, I'm pretty sure she'd want me to stay and skate. And he says, well, why don't you fulfill that wish that she probably has for you? So he put his skates on and he was in tears, completely emotional, the fastest man on the planet in the 500 meter by far. And just a few meters out of the gate, he falls and Dan Jansen virtually never fell. And he was in tears again as he fell because he said, I can't do this. And then four, four days later was the 20, it was the thousand meter, which he was never really known for. And, and his dad said, why don't you devote this thousand meters race to her and give it everything you got. So he mobilized and he went to within just a few meters of the, front, of the, of the goal of the uh, finish marker. And he was, in, he was ahead, he was ahead of everybody, which was like the most stunning thing ever. And out of nowhere, it wasn't even a turn, he fell hopelessly to the ice and um, thus began the saga of Dan Jansen, what we called the, or what was called the Heartbreak Kid. And um, he repeatedly had difficulty after that. In the, every press conference, have you forgotten the death of your sister? Will you fall again? You've fallen all these times. Now you're going to fall again. Couldn't get it out. And his agent called me and said, if we don't do something with Dan, he's going to go down is the greatest speed skater in history, never to, have won a goal, never to have won a medal. And maybe the greatest choker in sports history. And so I said, well, I'll do everything I can. So we trained for two years. And uh, just before we started, right about that time, he went into Albertville. And again, he slipped and um, he didn't fall, but then he went into the thousand meter and he came in 26th in the world. And I had him in his, I have all of his training logs. I just looked at them the other day. And at the top of his training log, I had a couple of things that I felt the 500 was so unforgiving that he could have, he could be a great thousand meter. It's so much genius, so much skill. I said, you can be a thousand meter skater. I want you to write at the top of your training log. I love the 1,000. And he said, that's not true. I don't love the 1,000. I hate the 1,000. I just do it for training purposes. I said, I wanna teach you how your brain works. If you say that and you do it with intensity and intentionality, your brain will start changing. You're rearranging the furniture between your ears. And I said, what do you really want to have happen before you finish? And he said, well, I'd love to get some kind of medal. Um, I don't don't know, I just like to end my career with a medal because I got one more Olympics and that's it, I'm done. And I said, okay, so a medal and what else? he said, I'd like to break if possible, the 36 second barrier in the 500 before I retire. That's like the Roger Bannister four minute mile. It can never be broken. So we wrote 3599 at the top of all of his training logs. And um, he broke the 36 second barrier four times before his final race at Lillehammer. Um, and he came in 26th in the 1000, two years earlier at Albertville. And in the 500 meter, I, I flew to Lillehammer because I never came to most of his events, but I, I hid, I didn't even have credentials because I didn't want him to know I was there. I didn't want to add any additional pressure, but I wanted to be there in the event that he didn't win a gold medal or a medal in the 500 that we could mobilize for the 1000, his final race of his career. And he slipped slightly in the thousand, I mean, in the 500 and it, he came in eight. So that was gone. So I tried to maneuver myself across the arena and to let him know I was there and had all these police officers and everyone else trying to keep me. And I kept screaming at Dan and, <laughs> and uh, finally he heard me and he looks over and he about fainted that there mm-hmm. I was. So we went down and for the next four days we trained and he remembered. And he said, you know, I have to tell you, I don't know, I, I would never have believed it, but I think I love the 1,000 meter more than the 500. Mm-hmm. And it was that race, the 1,000 meter, that he'd come in 26 in the world two years earlier. He had seven people that had faster times than he had in his, ever in his career, one of them being Kevin Scott, who was the world record holder. He, he won an Olympic medal and he broke an Olympic record And he got the monkey off his back. And he demonstrated that no matter how bad it gets, there is always hope. And one of the big takeaways I think for Dan was that he would have been okay. That he recognized that speed skating was a gift to him. No matter what happened, he would have been grateful for all the opportunities this sport had given him and that he was going to give the best he could, no matter what happens. And he would live, he would be okay with it. And he wanted to show how much joy and how grateful he was in his final race for having this opportunity and all the sacrifices that people had made so that he would have a chance to skate. And he blew the top off. He just uh, astonished the world. It's one of the greatest stories, I think, in sports history. Yeah. And the reason I felt that is he's such a good guy. I, I really appreciate and respect who he is as a person. And he did everything we had asked him to do over that course of that two-year period. And the story ended the way it should have ended. Not always in sport does it end that way, but that story ended because he was the best in the world and he proved that he could be the best in the world in a race that everyone said was never going to happen for him. And he changed that mindset and he changed his history. And so that for me, it was a wonderful story, a wonderful guy, and I was very privileged to be to be part of it.
0: I absolutely love that story, you know, and I think, you know, again, for all the listeners, and I think we have a lot of young tennis players, we have a lot of parents, we have a lot of lot of coaches listening to these stories. And I think, you know, the inspiration that a story like that can give is 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 absolutely massive. The the one thing I want to pick up. Is is around the hidden scorecard. So, look, you uh, have articulated things better than I absolutely can in 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 around the hidden scorecard, around success measures. But I, but I do think my beliefs marry up to a lot of your beliefs. And and, and what I what I've tried to really get across to players, parents, I've had an academy now for twelve years in Spain, is around this if you want to win the long game by having all of these success measures and understanding yourself, understanding the context of where the sport lies within it and really focusing in on developing your values, being a good person, you know, all of these things, I I believe that the, the one of the things, not just about being a good person, you actually can then perform with more freedom because you now right. have a perspective and you have a... Now, I time and time again, have come across certain parents and players that see that philosophy as quite fluffy and they almost they almost look at it and go, so how, when you're teaching that, how do we get that balance of having that perspective but also maintaining that real winner in that desire? Because so many people say, Serena Williams has won 23 Grand Slam, she's a born winner. You know, she's got that and, and actually she she doesn't care about certain people at certain times because she does worries about winning what 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 would you say to those people and how and how do you get that balance of perspective whilst having that real edge that drives winners as well
1: well let me just begin by saying i'm a science guy i'm a numbers guy and i i didn't get there by just you know, hoping this would be the case and just because yep. it sounds good. Yeah, I've spent endless hours reviewing data, all the data. We had over 400,000 people go through the Institute. And we tracked um, a lot of these folks and we, they went through this two and a half day program and then they were on the program for 90 days and some we tracked for 18 months. And all the data led me to this sustained performance is a function of health. The single most important dimension in sustainability is health. And health is physical, it's emotional, it's mental, and it's character health, spiritual health. And of all of them, the single most important sustainable factor was character health. What kind of a person are you? Because in a sense... We were all born to be connected to others in some way. And you can walk over dead bodies and get to the top, but you are not going to be happy. And if you rise quickly and you and you really take a lot of shortcuts to get there, it can be a pretty, pretty uncomfortable fall from the top of that mountain. So what we found, we were looking for sustainable success.
0: Yeah, that's important. Yeah. And what
1: you and what you are talking about is, you know, being a good person, a person of great character and caring about others, caring about the impact that you have on others and realizing that I'm here as a gift and I'm gonna do the best to really make a difference in my life, but more importantly, in the lives of others. I wanna be an inspiration. I'd like to be an inspiration like Roger Federer has been to millions of of players, Uh, his quality, the way he handles himself, the way he is a father, the way he is a husband, the way he gives back to charity. He's a person that has stayed there, maybe one of the most enduring athletes in terms of prestige and admiration that you're gonna find in all of sports. So I would simply say this, it's, you can call it fluff, that's an easy way out, yep. but I'm not driven by fluff. And I've written 17 books, and they've all been kind of the last two have been around this whole notion of the importance of character in high performance, sustained high performance. So, you know, you can discount it and you can get to the top in a lot of ways and pound this into their head. But I will tell you, more important than what they achieve is who is the person becoming as a consequence of the chase. I'll say it again. We as human beings were born to chase. More important than winning or accomplishing the mission is who are you becoming as a consequence of the chase? You want to be uh, miserable and not happy with who you are and treat people badly just as an exchange for winning a major tournament or winning or becoming number one in the world because most people don't see it in that way. They just think once they become number one in the world, all their problems will go away. Well, I have some very tragic news for you. That's when it all begins, baby. (laughs) And uh, so you have to build the foundation and parents have to get it right. The reason they have their son or daughter in sports is to help them grow up and become better, more fully functioning human beings of great character. If they sacrifice that to get to the top, I will tell you the price is yep. never worth the payoff. And it will, it will follow them for the rest of their life. So you can get addicted to success, addicted to fame, addicted to money, addicted to achievement. I've been around folks, thousands of them who've had that addiction and it's a tough addiction to break and there's nothing there other than money and fame and that doesn't last very long. You're only as good as your last performance And a lot of times you'll end up burying anything and everyone to get to the next achievement. And that only heightens your sense of disillusionment in that sense of, is this all there is in life? And the others that never achieve much, but really are sound, really good people of great character who understand what life is all about and are willing to make sacrifices on behalf of helping others achieve what they need to achieve as well in the right way those are the real success stories
0: get that in your ears everybody you know and it's another moment that you need to keep playing back because it's a it's a quite brilliant message and i think it can it can lead to a lot of happiness you know and i think absolutely you know potentially potentially sport and you know probably one of my greater purposes that i certainly see for for me to be bringing in the sport of tennis is, is that tennis is an amazing sport because it builds it's a great
1: it's one of the greatest gifts we'll ever have in our it's, lifetime if you get it packaged right yeah. you'll never you'll play it for your whole life and it keeps sending messages about how to deal with the forces of life in a microcosm of life that failure is not deadly or permanent you learn how to deal with it it's a preparation for life and if you get to number one that's icing on the cake but tennis is a gift
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And my, my last question is I can't have you on without touching on all of the other industries that you've worked in within, within psychology. So I know, you know, a big part of it's been sport, but you've been in business, you've been in medicine, law enforcement, FBI, hostage rescue teams, military special forces, you know, to name a few, I'm sure. So how, how have you been able to take your learnings from tennis into those other fields and then back from those other fields, back into tennis?
1: So the human system is the human system. And whether you're a, a, an, a, an yep. attorney, uh, a trial attorney and you're working, trying to accomplish some mission with, uh, with a jury, whether you are, Uh, a special operations guy in Afghanistan or Iraq trying to complete a mission, whether you're a surgeon and you're under extraordinary pressure in this emergency surgery uh, that you've never quite done exactly like this before. And a lot of the, the chemicals that are secreted during match play, a lot of the emotions, the only difference is in a lot of these other fields, if you fail, it's life and death. You actually hold um, a different consequence for failure. Yep. But what tennis helped us to do to do is to understand how the system is wired and how we can help people in mission critical venues actually be more precise and do everything they can to prevent a tragedy from occurring. So Johnson & Johnson became very heavily involved in uh, our business and they were really interested in the application of this to the health industries, to nurses, to doctors, to anyone who is in a, in a health profession trying to bring um, a person out of you know, serious sickness or needing surgeries or health issues. And they became so enamored with it. They, they actually insisted that when they looked at the outcome data that they really wanted to own this company. And so they, they really uh, painted such a picture that we decided to go ahead and sell it. But I think what it spoke to was that we created this incredible story about the, the, the connection between health and performance, that the healthier you are as a surgeon, the healthier you are as a special forces person, the healthier you are as a firefighter, the healthier you are um, um, in any uh, performance arena that matters, the better you're gonna perform under pressure and health is physical, emotional, mental, and character health. Yep. So we work very hard on helping to build the character of everyone who wants to be extraordinary in what they're doing and particularly if it's high risk. So, all of the lessons that we learned in tennis and other sports, I worked in boxing and a lot of, you know, professional and amateur hockey and and lots and lots of golfers and so forth. And all this helped us do was to distill some of the most important um, understandings about how we're wired as a species. And it's just in tennis, if you double fault, no one dies. If you double fault as a surgeon, someone might die or cause serious damage to that system's vitality. So you know, sport is another is a gift. It was a living laboratory for distilling uh, an approach to dealing with human performance that I will always feel grateful for. And I'm always learning, and the science is always coming forth with new important uh, understandings and nuances about. Uh, how it's really a powerful chemical process. This notion of confidence, something we call an ideal performance state is very delicate, very complicated. And uh, we need to push all the levers we can, particularly in some venues where it's really big. And for us in a lot of these venues like medicine and special forces, law enforcement, our, our greatest contribution was helping them understand how to get recovery. They're all wired, they're all fired up, but they don't understand how to train the mechanisms of recovery so they can go out and expand unbelievable energy in behalf of what they're doing. And they have to figure out how to get recovery in you know micro microseconds or micro minutes. They need to be able to figure out how to get better sleep, rest, how to eat properly, how to hydrate properly, even during long surgeries to figure out how do they get their blood glucose stabilized so that they don't end up you know, bonking just because their their brain is no longer getting enough. Our brain, our neurons are gluttons for glucose and oxygen. And so we, we really helped to distill some of that, uh, understanding how energy is released in the mitochondria of the cells and the union of oxygen and glucose. And the more we understood that process, the Krebs cycle and how we could prepare to make sure it never is a crisis, the system is gonna operate a whole lot better under, under really adverse circumstances.
0: And I guess from what you've said there as well, perspective is a massive learning to take back into tennis. And it gets me thinking, if there was a way of us taking our young tennis players into the medical field, into Hi. into the military, you know, to be able to just see what actually happens. And, and if you don't mind me sharing a really quick story, I I was at a at a boxing match, you know, a boxing fight maybe three or four years ago. And, and I got given a ticket to go right up to the front. And it was a it was a UK title fight. So it was two high level high-level boxers televised. And I just saw it in their eyes. If they made one false move, they were down. <laughs> they, were, yeah. they, were, they were knocked out. And then I take that back into, into the tennis arena and how many tennis players just kind of, they're in and out a little bit. They lack engagement. They play 100.
1: That's, 150- that's when they would get hit.
0: And they're going to get hit, you know, and that, that double fault or that ball that goes past them, it costs them a point, but because they don't have the perspective of how, how important that, that is, you know, and, and then my second thing is then that perspective of the difficulties that other industries and other fields have, you know, and then to bring that gratitude to being able to be playing a sport, you know, all year round. Okay. We make a couple of errors. We lose a match. However, there's another chance. There's another chance tomorrow, and the same with the Dan Jansen story. You know, he has to wait two years. You know, he slips. It's a 36 second race. You know, and, and he slips, and then he, his next chance is two years later. On tennis, we get next week. You know, and exactly. there's and there's always exactly. that. And I think the perspective is is just perspective massive.
1: is such a big thing. I, I had an opportunity to work with Ray Boom Boom Mancini in his title fight with Hector Macho Camacho in Las Vegas. And I was there ringside and I was there with all of his training and he would just get beaten bloody by, they would usher in two or three new you know, fresh boxers. And he was just getting beaten up. And I I asked Ray, I said, how is it that you remain so positive if you just get the heck kicked out of you? How is it possible? And he said, Jim, something you don't understand, a negative thought always is what causes you to get hit in the face. You're not as fast with the negative thought. It actually takes you out. He said, so you get boxers are extraordinarily positive because mm-hmm. they realize that every time they get a negative thought, they get hit. Yes. And then I flash back to tennis and I say, what if every time a tennis player had a negative thought, they got hit in the face, they clean up their act in a hurry.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I might try it, Jim, although I'm not sure I'll have too many, too many kids in my academy. Um, before we go to the quick fire, and it is quick if you want it to be quick, um, Luke Jensen was on last week and it wasn't quick. It took 30 minutes, but that's, uh, that was Luke Jensen. Um, in terms of those listening, not everyone is, is afforded the luxury of having sports psychology on their doorstep you know i think you know not everyone's got the luxury of even a tennis coach you know now what i've taken from from today is visualization comes for free journaling comes for free reading books comes for free you know so there's there's certainly things that people can can learn about this subject and and help themselves but aside from those things what would you say the one or two best bits of advice you could give to parents players coaches who maybe don't have direct access to to a sports psychologist um, but they want to move forward in, in this area
1: I would simply say that just like you train in all the other areas you have to train in the, a mental and emotional area and if you if you don't work hard at this and you w- working hard means in a match you try to control, anger, fear, frustration, and replace it with positive emotions, challenge, opportunity, a sense of gratefulness, joy, anything that brings positive emotionality will help break that cycle. And that's hard work because it's not, you know what I tell everyone is that it's not normal to be a great competitor, to be number one in the world, to be number one in your section. You can't have a normal mind and process the way everybody else is. It's normally get upset. It's normal to beat yourself up for making a stupid double fault here. It's normal to have this full range of emotion and being overwhelmed by all this pressure and choking. But if you want, you're gonna have to do some upgrades to your brain. Your brain needs some significant upgrades if you want to be an extraordinary competitor. And you can build that brain, but you're gonna have to build it with dedication and intentionality and let your brain know what you want What kind of competitor do you wanna be? Who do you wanna be as a competitor? Uh, How do you wanna handle tough times? Maybe it is you have someone like Maria Sharapova as your model or Serena Williams or Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic or any of these. You need to have someone, I I wanna be like that. And then you go out and you start acting like that between points, during points and preparing yourself, holding yourself accountable in practice. If you want it, you can have it, but you're gonna have to do a lot of heavy lifting. How long did it take to get that forehand that you love? You had a lot of repetitions. You're gonna have to work that brain of yours because it needs significant upgrading for you to be the competitor and be able to play at your highest level capable in those pressure moments. It's just like, you know, most people can't do that. And if you can't do it, just say, hey, I'm normal. I need to be a little bit more abnormal and I'm gonna have to train, just like you've had to train to get your core strength, to get your bicep and tricep and quadricep strength to be able to get down. You had to train all those muscles to be able to produce this incredible backhand or forehand or all the things that you can do in your serve. If you don't train mentally and emotionally, it's just gonna happen by accident and you'll probably lag far behind and it's not moving air around inside your head you're actually building neural pathways that carry messages that will enable you to control this big operating center that you have
0: great advice and before before we go into the quick fire i do i do just want to say a massive thank you for for your time you know i know you know time is very precious and I know you're a very busy and sought-after man. And I think, I think to come on for you to come on to this podcast, and uh, rest assured, there's going to be a lot of people extremely grateful for for the time that you've given up. Um, I've certainly loved talking to you. I could, apart from having a bad voice today, I could <laughs> I could listen to you all night long. It's been a real pleasure. So thank you so much, Doc.
1: Well, thank you very much, Daniel. I uh, I've really enjoyed. You've done your homework. You've got a lot of great questions, and I hope we got to some issues that will help people to, you know, continue to dig deeper and to figure out how good they can be in this world of tennis. But never lose sight of the fact that who they are becoming as a person supersedes anything that they achieve in tennis, and that you can use tennis to become a stronger, better, more fully functioning person. So that happens. We both went on this and I'm more than happy to devote my energy and time to this. So thank you.
0: Are you ready for the quick fire? Quick
1: fire. Let's do it.
0: What's your favorite Grand Slam?
1: My great, my, is the U S open. Um, and the reason is it's, uh, it's a rough tournament and tough New York city asphalt and concrete and it's kind of, you know, it requires, the elegance, I love the elegance of Wimbledon. There's nothing like it. And, you know, the red dirt is, uh, you know, five sets on that stuff is something else. But I mean, I've been to all the Grand Slams and have been involved in all of them. And I, I've, I was, I probably went 23 consecutive years to the U.S. Open and the concrete and seeing it all, the qualities and all that stuff. So I'd say favorite is U.S. Open.
0: And, and a night, night match of Flushing Meadows is something very special. That's for <laughs> yes. sure. Should there be coaching allowed on court or not in tennis?
1: I'm, I'm a strong believer that, you know, tennis, one of the great things about tennis is that it's a ruggedly individualistic sport. Once you reach a certain level in junior tennis, uh, really competitive tennis, I think pretty much coaching is, you know, maybe at certain times, somebody can give you some messaging, but the beauty of tennis is there's no coaching, but I am a strong advocate of coaching in the junior years to help them develop, just sticking them out there and hope they're gonna learn all these lessons. You're you're really, I think it's a missed opportunity, but once you reach the professional ranks, you're on your own, baby. I think that's one of the beauties of tennis. You gotta figure it out for yourself.
0: And in 10 years time, do you think that we'll have more mental fitness coaches on the road with players? Like, like we've seen the trend continue with the physical fitness coaches.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, there, there will definitely be more and more attention given to this and, um, it'll be the merging of physiology and psychology in a dynamic way, you know, whether it's EEG or, you know, neurochemical balance, we're still dealing with stuff. that's really hard to measure, but, uh Performance psychologists will have to be really grounded multiple disciplinary yep. you know knowledge in physiology and in neurochemistry and there has to be an understanding of what's going on inside the body and the brain and how these pathways are myelinated and what kind of inputs and how we change it, whether it's indoctrination through some kind of uh, process of listening to your own voice or others voices with music, there will be, much more sophistication here, and it will be a blending of all these sciences, because the brain is by far the the operating center, and we need to understand better exactly how do we put messages in that system, and how do we get the amygdala, this emotional center under better control, and uh, how, how do we measure this in more precise ways, and I think the future is we need to have people who really are grounded in all those areas to be able to understand the process and then teach it in a very practical step-by-step fashion.
0: Should tennis players be allowed a medical timeout?
1: I feel like there are legitimate reasons for that, but when you leave the court and you can go and, you know, kind of recalibrate off the court, I'm not a big fan of that. I really feel like you need to have tight controls over those medical timeouts. And, um, you know, what do you do if someone has an injury and it's an area where they have to, they have to leave the court to do that uh, for privacy purposes? They need to be very carefully observed. It can be, you know, it's just, there are so many opportunities to use medical timeouts as some form of gamesmanship, you know, to actually get a, if you're about to lose, you and you're really out of sorts, all of a sudden you take a time out, and now we've got 10, 15 minutes and the other person's cooled down and now you've got to get back in rhythm and you've cleared your brain out, your start, it's a reset. And so it's a, it's a complicated issue. It was done for the right reasons, but uh, I think there has to be a lot more scrutiny on how this is executed.
0: There's, there's definite question marks over people's moral and ethical character, <laughs> when it when it when it comes to medical timeouts, and yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, Djokovic, it wasn't even a medical timeout; it was a toilet break. It was two sets to love down in the final of Roland Garros, and he was eight and a half minutes off the court.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't have the inside dope on all that, but uh, there, there, you just have to kind of. We need to look at this much more carefully.
0: Who will win Wimbledon women's title 2021? Who's your pick?
1: Oh my goodness. There are, uh, I I really hate to say because I'm working with a lot of the players so I I don't (laughs) want to give that away. I don't want to say that something because they're going to be playing each other so that would not be a smart move. (laughs) I'm just going to say that women's tennis is wide open now that Serena is no longer a major force, the greatest player ever in the history of women's tennis. Now everyone has a chance to really get in there and stir the pot up. And women's tennis has gotten, I mean, the players are so much better, much fitter, better competitors in every way. Women's tennis is really very exciting and there will be uh, lots of surprises in this Wimbledon, I I can assure you that there will be big surprises in this contest.
0: What about the men's?
1: Yeah, I have people on the men's <laughs> side as well. So.
0: Can anybody, but, uh, can anybody stop Novak Djokovic winning number 20?
1: You know, um, you know, grass is a very interesting, it's very slippery, you never know how it all goes, but I would say he is the odds on favorite for sure. Yeah. But yeah, um, you know, it's never a sure thing. And that's what makes it so exciting is that anything can happen along the way. There are going to be a lot of, I think there are going to be some upsets, but I'm not sure it's going to be Novak.
0: What's one rule change that you would have in tennis?
1: I I really think that uh, there's a a lot of room. I love the idea of having the UTR rankings um, as opposed to just you know, that everybody has a ranking relative to number one in the world. It could be male, female, small, large. Everyone is kind of given an opportunity. And uh, I'm, I'm more in favor. I think that will become more the, the way in which people look at how you are rated as your skill level and competitor, as opposed to, you know, these very strict um, age groups and so on and so forth that um, are organized around because some people are young kids are way ahead of the curve when in development at by the age of 14 or 15 compared to another kid who's yeah. like so tiny and you know they just get blown out all and all every time they play in their age group so there are a lot of issues but for me we should do away with linesmen and and all that business we, sh- we should have in professional tournaments, we should have automatic systems that are more precise than the human eye. You can see how many times players get it wrong. Yep. Um, and that eliminates all that energy fighting with linesmen and then overruling and all that kind of stuff and putting a lot of pressure on the chair umpires to make this happen. We need technology and we should, when, it, when so much money's on the line, we should definitely have technology based line calling. And, you know, there's a long tradition of having linesmen and linespersons and all that stuff. But once you see how, how efficient and effective and precise that is, I think that's the way the future should be.
0: And if somebody listening could read one of your books, which one would you tell them to read? <laughs>
1: Oh my goodness. I always think that my last work is the most important and because it's around character. It's my latest kind of iteration. For players, I would say, you know, the only way to win, the only way to win is uh, my second to last book. The only way to win is to win with character. And the only way to lose is to lose with character. But leading with character, it applies more in the corporate world, but it applies to all of us. And what it does is it gets you into the practice of journaling and trying to help you understand if you go to the end of your life, who do you want to be? And if you're going to chase, make sure that you get that right in the context of what really matters most in your life. And that's how you're going to sustain success. So, you know, the last chapter of my life, the last 10 years, has been around those two books. So if, uh, if you're a player, you know, and if you're trying to just get involved in competitive sport, um, the new toughness training for sport probably would have or mental toughness training for sport those were my first books and they resonated with an awful lot of players some players still carried around in their bags
0: well we will certainly put the links to those books in the in the podcast notes as with website that you can get in touch with with the doc and my our last question we ask on every podcast, The small print is the answer you give to this, you then become accountable for bringing this person to the podcast. So answer with care. Gully, Captain Gully said yourself, hence why Captain Gully had a job to get you onto the podcast. So who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables?
1: Uh, I would have you, uh, Dr. Sheila Walker is an outstanding tennis player. She was not too long ago fourth in the United States in her age group, but she was one of the top juniors, played top level competitive tennis. She's a competitive junkie, but she's a neuroscientist. Right, okay. And uh, she understands tennis, the dynamics of tennis, and can talk about developing the brain uh, in a way that only a neuroscientist can do that. And she's specializing in the development of of young people and she uses tennis as her medium. So I can't think of a better person than Dr. Sheila Walker. She's very, very articulate and in very high demand. So she would be a superstar for you.
0: Well, my my PA will be in touch with you to organise that. In brackets, myself because I'm my PA as well. So I'll uh, so 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 I'll be in touch with you. Um, Once again, thank you. Truly, that was that was a real treat for me, and it'll be a real treat for the listeners to to listen to you. So thank you,
1: Daniel. Congratulations on all your success and for your energy that you put into your podcast and your academy. And uh, I hope we can make a difference here.
0: Thank you. A big thank you to you all for for listening. And it's it's Dan Keenan back with you. We had Darth Vader doing <laughs> doing the interview with Jim Lair, And uh, yeah, I'd just like to thank the local pharmacy. I know <laughs> my voice wasn't great during that podcast, but I can assure you 10 minutes before, there was no noise coming out, like nothing at all, and I'd already, we'd already had to change the date once because Jim wanted to do the same time as we had our British grass Court special, and I had to decline and say, I'm really sorry, but can we do it next week? So to get a guest like that on, I wasn't going to cancel, but I apologise for, for the voice and hopefully... I'll be back to my normal self from now. And yes, that was Vicky as well, you heard laughing next to me. And it's great to have Vicky back with me. I know she's been missing on the last on the last couple, just circumstance, lots of things going on.
2: Watching Wimbledon.
0: Watching <laughs> watching Wimbledon and French open. We're seeing nothing much else other than that. And and also getting over the fact that she lost the argument around confidence last time. But we won't No, well let's not go into that again. <laughs> we won't go into that again, but what a great one for you to come back to, you know, and I don't know if you'd heard of Jim Lair before, before the podcast. I'm sure lots of the listeners had. He's someone who I followed for many, many years, you know, and almost like the, the Nick Boletari of sports psychology in some ways. And I think it's quite apt that, you know, those guys got together back in the 80s to work together because he really seemed to put sports psychology on the map.
2: He really did. I had heard of him, but I will certainly be going to have a look at some of his books now. He, w- he was so interesting and um, a lot just simplified so many things. He just really talks in a way that I think is very relatable to players, to coaches, to parents.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think when you talk to someone who is an expert in their field, which Dr. Lear clearly is, you know, for many, many, many years, you find yourself nodding a lot, <laughs> You know, as as they're saying things, say so, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why the hell have I not written seventeen books? Do you know? So it's it's very very clear that that his his expertise you know comes through in such a way that it's so simplified, you know. And and just to share a very quick story, and our head strength and conditioning coach at Soto Tennis Academy will will hate me for doing this because this is me stealing this off him. But he talks about a Bruce Lee story and how Bruce Lee talks about martial arts. When he first started out in martial arts, he was like, well, this is easy. You know, punch is a punch and a kick is a kick and nothing's a problem, you know. And then as he went through that journey of learning about martial arts, he was like, actually, I know nothing about martial arts. You know, this is really difficult went through years and years and years until he came through the other side and became a bit of a master, a bit of an expert in the field of martial arts. And he was like, do you know what? A kick's a kick, a punch is a punch. And and I think it it is a little bit like that in any field of expertise, you know, it starts off as easy, you then learn everything behind it, and then you actually realize it is quite simple, but you've just got all of the, the learning and understanding behind it. And certainly one thing that stood out for me and which I loved and I've I've used a lot, you would have heard me talking a lot about success measures over the over the last eighteen months, and that's something that's quite close to my heart. Whereas Dr. Lair was talking about the hidden scorecard and Everybody does have different ways of measuring their success and different ways of scoring success in their life. And I guess the thing that I'm going through in my head now, and I don't know what the listeners think on this, is how we get that balance of of being a born winner who is so edgy and you think about so many of these winners that are, are so edge right on the edge and and actually being someone who has a bit more perspective, understands the context of where tennis or sport or business or whatever it is that fits in fits into their life and and getting that right balance is something that I find fascinating, you know, and I think, you know, maybe one of the reasons we love Roger Federer so much is he seems to have got that balance, you know, he, he loses a match, he comes off and I think I shared that story and he just says, look, well, if I win, I go out for dinner with my family and if I lose, I go out to dinner with my family and what a lovely way to live your life and... That's that. I think he put that very well. I know from reading Dr. Le's books as well. You know, he really goes into that even more. And they've done lots of studies on this. And I think this is quite fascinating that the number one most influential thing on elite athletes is parents. And the number two is their moral and ethical character. You know, so people that are doing the right things and living life the right way, those are the most two two most defining factors on success over thousands and thousands and thousands of athletes who they've tested over the last thirty or forty years.
2: I mean, he said repeatedly throughout, didn't he, person first, athlete second, it's about being a good person and having some perspective. and I think he made that point all the way through the episode.
0: And also control the controllables. Yes, he did. <laughs> it's it's almost as if it's almost as if he he, he was set up perfectly for our philosophy. And it, it just the longer I go through this journey, the more understanding I have on what control the controllables means to me. And and I think if we are ultimately taking care of the things that we can in our control, we don't go too far wrong. And I think Doctor Lair just backed backed that up time and time again. I absolutely love the story, and I know I noticed before we started this, you were watching the video. of Dan Jansen.
2: Say that, yeah. I'd never heard of him before, Dan Jansen, and I've just cried watching the video, (laughs) the video about his story. So yeah, that's well worth a watch if you have the time. I'll put the the link to that in the show notes. It was an absolutely brilliant story.
0: Yeah, and so many in sport, and you know, I think, you know, I really do hope that. People listening to this will, will have taken lots from it. I tried to get out of him. What can we do? What can we do for free? Because we don't all have sports psychologists and gym on on the corner that we're just picking up things with and certainly writing things down, journaling. You know, I actually, I had a, A tennis player today playing out in Kenya and give you a shout out George Russell he lost to a to a player in qualifying and didn't behave as well as he would like and he played the guy again in the second round main draw because he got he got in as a lucky loser and I said what was the difference and he said well last night I just spent some time thinking writing down how I wanted to act how I wanted to be on the court and it just gave me absolute clarity on, on what I was then able to do. And what he's done there is he's used a journal and he's used visual, visualization, you know, and these things come for free. And any tennis players out there, tennis coaches, tennis parents, if you are serious about squeezing every part of your performance out on the court, there are many things that you can be doing to prepare your minds the best and that you possibly can. And I think. You know, we're very, very big advocates of, you know, mindset coaching, performance, psychology, you know, putting the work in to to be a mentally fit person first and foremost. And then from there, mentally fit people are obviously going to have a much better chance to put in good mental performances as well. And that's something that is in our control. And, yeah, if you want to learn more, I'm sure... There's plenty of opportunity on, on all the different websites to get Dr. Lair's books. And I would certainly recommend that I've just finished reading Leading with Character, which is his latest book. And it's certainly taught me a lot as, as these podcasts continue to do.
2: And as ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you thought of the episode with Dr. Lair. You can contact us on Instagram at ctc.podcast. Or you can email us at info at um, Just like to give a shout out to Adele Williams, who's contacted us to say, firstly, can I say how much I enjoy listening to your podcast and how informative they are? I've been tuned in since last summer and every Friday is my day off and I always catch up on your podcast while ironing the clothes. It's become my Friday routine.
0: And a big hello to Adele and also to all of your kids. I know you've got four tennis players who you can also see on Instagram, the Mawala brothers, which has been, you know, we we have followed them as well. And it's great to see those smiling faces. So thank you for getting in touch, Adele. And, and hopefully the conversation was helpful. A, a, a big thank you to you all you guys continue to inspire us with your messages. We love to get your takeaways. We love to have discussions. I know that some of our former guests have been in touch on quite a regular basis and often give me their opinions and we bounce back and forth. And and I really do just love this podcast world you know just the the opportunity to to hear these people speak so candidly about what they do given their opinions you know from there you can take that opinion whichever way you want you know formulate your own philosophies you know discuss with friends you know please do continue to to share these podcasts far and wide and the biggest thank you goes to you our loyal listeners but until next time I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables.